Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of James, Faith That Works. So turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Warning to the Rich. Karl Marx once called religion the opiate of the people. And the reason he thought that is because he said it offered the downtrodden and the poor the hope of heaven. In this way, they were told that they need not worry about the fight for justice, that justice would come to them in another life. This, he said, was an effective tool for the rich and powerful who needed the poor and the oppressed to remain docile. And that's why religion was an opiate for Marx. It stopped the poor from rising up and overthrowing their oppressors. Well, at this end of history, we have now seen that Marxism has done its fair share of oppressing as well. Millions have been murdered, and many more millions languished in prisons and in gulags. The economies of countries under this system were were locked in stagnation and decline. And any free thought or free speech was quickly condemned by the thought police who were quick to drag you away. You know, George Orwell was right in his book Animal Farm. No new system was really set in place at all. It was just a different group doing the oppressing. But that brings me back to Marx's critique. He thought that religion was a system to keep the powerful, rich oppressors in place. Well, too bad he never read his Bible. Leviticus 19, verse 10, commands landowners, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. And Psalm 113 verse 7 says of God, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. You know, in other words, God's economy allows for the poor to be lifted economically. Indeed, Leviticus chapter 25, the law concerning the year of Jubilee, was the law of canceling the debts of the poor and returning them to their ancestral lands. And furthermore, the prophets are filled with denunciations of those rich who oppress the people. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 12 and following asks this question. He who oppressed the poor and the needy commits robbery, does not restore the pledge of a debtor, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abominations, lends at interest and takes profit. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations, he shall die. You know, furthermore, Isaiah 58, verse 6 to 7 commands, Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? No, the Bible proclaims that God defends the poor and the needy. Mark should have read the book. It is filled with calls for justice and mercy and compassion. Nowhere is this seen more than in the beginning of the last chapter of the book of James. And I'm reading James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasures in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. If you've never heard that passage before, it, it might sound shocking. You know, our first question might be, is this a condemnation of every rich person? So let's answer that question first. Nowhere does the Bible condemn the person who is rich just for being rich. And furthermore, the Bible acknowledges that there were some in the early church who were rich. And when it speaks to them, it gives detailed instructions about how to navigate the potential traps of wealth. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 18 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Well, if that's the case, then it is clear that in answer to our first question, the Bible does not condemn every rich person. It allows for a group that we might call the godly rich. Even though this pathway is difficult, and Jesus said it was hard, yet it is possible for a rich person to be godly. Now, the second question, who then is James addressing? And on this matter, there are some differences of opinion. Some say he's addressing the rich and sinning Christians in the church, and others say that he's only addressing the non-Christian oppressive rich. Well, we do notice that in these six verses, unlike in the previous chapter, he doesn't call the rich to mourn and weep and to humble themselves before God. There's no call for repentance at the beginning of chapter 5, only a statement of utter condemnation. See, that makes us think that James must be addressing, well, the unrighteous rich who are oppressing God's people, not Christians at all. You know, but if that's so, you have to admit that the unrighteous rich he's talking about, well, they're never going to read his condemnation, so why even give it? Now, if you've read the Old Testament prophets, you find this very same phenomenon. You know, time and time again, Isaiah, Jeremiah, others condemn, let's say, Babylon, but the Babylonians never heard their denunciations. So why did they even give these denunciations to a people who would never hear them? Well, the answer is they did it to comfort the people of God. God was in control. He will judge Babylon in due time. Comfort your souls. The Babylonians aren't getting away with anything. Now, here's what I think is happening in James. Back at the beginning of the book, in James chapter 1, verse 2, James told believers, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know, I've suggested that James is writing Jewish Christians in the diaspora who've suffered all manner of economic harm. Perhaps some of them had moved to Jerusalem after Pentecost and were a part of the early church. And then as persecution arose, they were driven out of Jerusalem. And perhaps they went back to where they came from and realized once they got there that everything they used to have was taken away. You know, perhaps the unrighteous landowners who knew how to take advantage of the poor, had taken advantage of these Christians, and now they were suffering trials. So perhaps James writes the first six verses of chapter 5 to comfort these afflicted brothers. Be confident. This is how God thinks of your tormentors. 
But James might also include a warning here for believers. You know, if God should so bless you with wealth, don't ever allow yourself to come into the place where you too will be utterly condemned. Look back at chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And then verse 6, God opposes the proud. And so I see in chapter 5 two things. James pronounces God's judgment on those who use their wealth in an unrighteous way. And in so doing, he accomplishes two things. He comforts God's afflicted people, and he also warns any believer from ever acting in this way. So, that being said, let's dive into the text. If you're rich, says James, and if you're using your wealth and your status unrighteously, notice his opening words. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And that's to say, you really don't have the good life after all. No one should envy you. The judgment of God is coming. Misery, not joy, will come to you. And as we will see, James promises these things when Christ returns. But that's the point. You unrighteous rich, the future is not on your side at all. The future is the very thing you should fear. For with every dollar that you abuse, you only heap up further misery. Now, at this point, we should have another question. Since being rich is not a sin, how then is any rich person to know if they're a part of the group that James is denouncing? And the answer to that question is vital. See, as we continue to read, we're going to see that James denounces four unrighteous uses of money. First, he denounces those who hoard money. That's in verses 2 and 3. Second, he denounces those who defraud and oppress others. That's in verse 4. And third, he denounces those who use their wealth to indulge themselves rather than to bless others. And then finally, and fourth, he denounces those who have used their wealth to further their own power by the use of violence. You know, money comes with many temptations. Jesus said that it was hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it was not impossible, but it was hard. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, Paul says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it is through unrighteous love of money that many have wandered from the faith and have plunged themselves into destruction. And James identifies the traps regarding money. Want access to all your favorite Back to the Bible content right at your fingertips? Then be sure to check out our free app. There you can listen to your favorite audio messages, read the Dr. John and Company blog, watch video sermons from Dr. John, and even access a digital Bible. Perfect for on the go. We strive to make Bible teaching and engagement resources as easily accessible as possible to as many people in as many ways, both nationally and internationally. To download the Back to the Bible Canada app at absolutely no cost to you, simply visit your app store and search Back to the Bible Canada. And for more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And on behalf of the whole ministry team, thank you. It's your support that allows us to make Bible teaching resources such as these possible. James begins with one of the great traps of riches. It's called hoarding. 
piling up money to an ever greater pile. Listen again to the words in verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Notice the words to the hoarder. The riches have rotted. And then in order to illustrate that, he speaks of garments eaten by moths. You know, what a waste of time it was to collect food for moths. But it's this second illustration that often puzzles people. The word for corroded is literally the word for rust. Now, if you have rust in your car, and you know that if you don't cut it out, it's going to consume your car. It's the beginning of the end. But we also know that gold and silver, well, they don't rust. And critics of James claim that, well, he was just a poor man and he didn't know that gold and silver don't rust. But listen, that's silly. And it fails to take into account the point that James is making. See, the reason people invest in gold and silver is for the very reason that they don't rust. They're a safe investment. But, says James, if seen through an eternal lens, they are no different than clothes that are subject to moths. In eternity, these metals, along with everything else, are consumed. As the days tick by, it is as if these metals are already rusting away and you can't stop the decay. You know, James is saying, you think you're hoarding? But the hoard has a huge leak and it's all draining away. And the more you hoard, the greater is your loss. You think that gold doesn't rust, but it's rusting as it's sitting on the pile. Now, notice James says that the corrosion or the rusting of your gold and silver will do two things. First, that hoarding will serve as evidence against you in the last days. James is, of course, referring to the last judgment. The case against you, says James, is now being gathered, and it's mounting even as your wealth is mounting. And then the second, this gold that you loved so much will eat your flesh like fire. It's actually like burning sulfur. When it, when it lights onto the skin, it burrows in and it can't be brushed off. But here's the question. Does this mean that all savings are wrong? Well, no. The book of Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 11, talks about saving. Little by little, it says, and then it says, that's wise. Only a fool spends all he has. Look, it's wise to have savings for retirement. And if that's so, what's the difference between wise saving and hoarding? I think the answer is actually simpler than we might think. What are you saving for? How much do you need in order to retire? Are you thinking about luxury or about reasonableness? Why would you save $1 more than what you actually need? See, hoarding is a sin because it, it fails to trust God and it assumes that safety and security rests in this world. In fact, all your savings simply belong to God. Hoarding is a sin against God. For God expects you to use your wealth to bless others. Instead, you've set up an idol. Your gold has become your God. Now, let's go to James' second example of the evil use of money. It's when we use our money in order to oppress others. That's what we have in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It was Daniel Doriani that points out that this can refer to three things. He speaks first of the Old Testament injunction that one must pay one's workers immediately. You know, in many cultures, especially those that have day laborers, receiving immediate pay is the difference between having enough and going without. 
but wicked employers might withhold the pay for a period of time because they can make a profit of that if they withhold. And the poor can't afford the delay and they suffer while the wealthy man is greatly benefited. That's a great sin that cries out to God. A second way of oppressing others is to pay workers less than a living wage. That is, whatever we pay them won't pay the bills. In our day, we have some people we call the working poor. They work full-time, but they're in poverty because they're not paid enough. And the third way the rich man oppresses the poor is he doesn't pay at all. You know, there are laws in this country that can force an employer to pay after he withholds pay from an employee. But there are those who line their own pockets while their workers are badly treated. Hear the word of the living God. To mistreat or underpay or withhold pay is a crime against God. God hears the cries of those who are defrauded a living wage. Any rich man who refuses to treat his employees well enough so that they can live is an abomination to God. So God is opposed to those who use their money to hoard rather than to live and to give and to invest. Second, God is opposed to those employers who withhold pay from their employees. Third, God is opposed to those who live in luxury. It's found in verse 5. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You know, when James talks about fattening for the day of slaughter, you know, I've got an image in my mind. My father-in-law was a hog farmer in Saskatchewan. And before he loaded his pigs on the back of the truck, they passed over a scale. He wanted them to be a certain weight, and if they were too light, he opened a gate that went to the right, and they went back to their pens. And if they were heavy enough... The gate directly ahead opened, and they went into the back of the truck that went to the slaughterhouse. When those pigs had indulged themselves enough, they were getting close to the slaughterhouse, and I think that's James' image. Your self-indulgence is making you fat enough for the slaughterhouse. But why? Because you're living a life without self-denial. It reminds us of Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man goes to hell, says Jesus, and in his misery, he calls to Abraham to come with a bit of water and provide him with some relief. I'm reading Luke 16, 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, you received good things and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now the tables were reversed. That's because the rich man was commanded by God to see the agony of the poor. That's an important lesson. God doesn't just call Christians to give generously and sacrificially. He demands it of all, and he demands it of those who are rich in this world. If the rich care only for themselves, God will demand it of them in the last day. Now, as an aside, this is a warning to all of us, regardless of our income level. You know, I've noticed how often it is how many people, when their income level bumps up, well, they simply bump up their lifestyle to match their new income level. Houses get larger, their vehicles get more expensive, the toys they have increases, all immediately proportional to their wealth. And when they give, they only give out of their excess and not out of their blessings. It's called self-indulgence. Listen, we're all called to live lives that are a blessing to others. We bless others because God has blessed us and because we're counting on God. Now, James mentions one more evil use of riches. Riches are used to further violence against others. 
verse 6 says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Indeed, he has no power to resist you. You know, when Harriet Beecher Stowe first released her book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, many people were stunned. When Abraham Lincoln met her, he said to her, is this the little woman who made this great war? You know, one slave owner said that this book gave birth to the anti-slavery movement. In Europe, those nations that might have supported the South turned from their support because the population in Europe had read this book. Until then, no one knew how much evil was being done by the powerful. But this book exposed it. Harriet Beecher Stowe was a Christian woman who believed that sin was the greatest curse of the human race and that only Christ can transform people. James, I think, would have loved her book. And in James, the unrighteous rich are condemned for their murder. Whether it be arms sellers who profit on war, or mafia bosses who kill their opposition, or slavers who beat men and women into submission, or a powerful businessman who buys up his competition and raises the prices on the poor, God stands opposed to those who harm others through the use of money, and the judge of the earth will not look the other way. Wealth is a gift of God, but like all of God's good gifts, they can be subverted and made into instruments of evil. This matter of economic justice is not something which should be left only to secular politicians. God cares about economic justice, and he will hold all who have this world's goods to an eternal accounting. For that reason, all of us need to say to the Lord, what I have is yours, and I will live in such a way that my life becomes a blessing to many. John, given what we talked about today, what should be the response of the wealthy Christian? Yeah, I think there are, uh, it's such a good question, because wealthy believers, there are, and we should affirm them and bless them as well. We should not condemn wealthy Christians for being wealthy. However, there are a number of warnings in the scripture. Uh, please be aware that the wealth itself will present a difficulty in your life, and sometimes that comes in terms of pride or the abuse of power. So beware. Do not be trapped in that. Second, be also always willing to share and recognize that your wealth is given to you by God so that you might contribute to others. So become known as a very generous giver. At least those two are the beginning points, I think. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our continuation of the series, Faith That Works, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. In our society, the topic of money is often regarded as taboo. However, God in his word certainly doesn't keep quiet on the matter and he's provided us with an abundance of financial direction. On that note, we're thrilled to offer you our newest resource, a short booklet called 10 Questions About Money Matters, based on Dr. John's audio series, God and Money. This booklet addresses 10 common money-related concerns from a biblical perspective, some insight to help better bring glory to God with our resources. Because we feel this topic is so important to your spiritual walk, we want to offer you this resource free for the whole month of August. So simply request your copy today 
Or if you'd like to offer a gift to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.